I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're getting you ready for the Patriots and the Bengals, of course, coming up on Christmas Eve. We'll chat with Dan Hoard, the play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Bengals, in just a little bit. I am really worried about this game. Not that I have big expectations for the Patriots going forward. I've already declared the season is over. They're not making it into the postseason. But this could get real ugly. We know how it ended against the Raiders, of course, last Sunday with Jacoby Myers' throw. Prior to that, Derek Carr taking that team down the field, which was embarrassing for a defense that was really good for the majority of that second half. But this could get really ugly. You're talking about one of the premier quarterbacks in the NFL and Joe Burrow. You're talking about T. Higgins. You're talking about Jamar Chase. They have two really good running backs in Mixon and Pirine. They have Boyd. They are completely loaded. I am really worried that this could get really, really ugly for the Patriots at Gillette Stadium on Christmas Eve. Like, I'm in a position right now where I'm not looking forward to watching that football game whatsoever. Most of the year, I'm at least looking forward to watching the games, but this one, based on where the Patriots are at in terms of the playoff hunt, I'm not interested in this game whatsoever because I just feel like it's going to be pure pain. It's going to be difficult for us to watch that football game. At least if they had beaten the Raiders, you're like, okay, there's somewhat of an optimistic view going into that game. Like, oh, maybe the Patriots can beat the Bengals. Maybe they can pull off a crazy upset because they came back from 17 to 3 against the Raiders. But now any hope that you had in the season is completely gone. But where I want to start is with the Celtics because I was talking about the watchability factor very recently, like maybe a week and a half ago, two weeks ago with them and the Bruins and how they ranked in terms of 
two of my favorite teams ever to watch in terms of the Boston sports scene in recent history. And now it feels like a chore. And what happened to them last night against the Indiana Pacers was just completely embarrassing and really unacceptable. They were down 71 to 43 at halftime. Think about that. 71 to 43. The Celtics were up eight to two in this game. And then the rest of the first quarter, they were outscored 40 to 12. So this is starting to become a problem for this team. Really, if you think about the Celtics, they should be on a six game losing streak. Your only win during this six-game stretch, if you will, was against the Los Angeles Lakers. Remember that wild game where Anthony Davis missed two free throws. If maybe even he hits one of them, the game's over. But definitely if he hits two, the game is over. You go to overtime because Jason Tatum hits that shot over LeBron James. But really, the Celtics really easily could have lost six straight games. And this team was off to this historic start offensively for so long. And you look at it, you end November, you go 14-2. and You have a 123.3 offensive rating that month, which would be the best in the history of the NBA. Second during that time was the Nuggets at 118.1. So 5.2 points better per 100 possessions than anybody else. The Celtics were unstoppable. The net rating, so the points that you're outscoring your team per 100 possession, was at 11.6. That was the most by a country mile. The Pelicans were second at 5.7. So you're talking about a 5.9 difference. So you were doubling up the second best team in the NBA. And now this historic offense that we saw in November is at 105.9, which is last in the NBA. You went from historically the greatest offense of all time to legitimately the worst offense in the NBA in the month of December. And second is the Clippers at 107.4. The Celtics, again, they're at 105.9. So all the numbers are bad. And I get it. The offense looked great in the second half of this game where against the Pacers where They have a 140.8 offensive rating. Jason Tatum was really good in the second half. But the first half, the offense was horrendous. And we've seen this time after time during this stretch where the Celtics have really been struggling. They've lost now two games to the Magic. They lost to the Pacers. And all this came after that rematch against the Golden State Warriors, which that felt like a massive game for the Celtics, right? It felt like they were working up to that point, try to get, not that it would have been revenge, but at least get some satisfaction out of beating the Warriors. And you're completely outplayed in the Bay Area. Your best player was not good. He was, what, 6 of 21 in that game, so that's 28.6%. He had 18 points. He missed two key free throws late to try to make it a game. So after this team really has not responded, we heard Jason Tatum felt like the trip on the West Coast was not fun, and you've had all these issues in terms of the offense over the past couple of weeks, But really, there are now, for the first time all season long, I felt like there are concerns. Even going back to last week, prior to the Magic losses, I didn't feel like there were concerns. I'd feel like, hey, they're going to play their way out of it. And like I said, I'm not jumping off the ship. I'm not abandoning the Celtics. But here are my concerns right now. The first one is this. Remember we talked about that fuck you mentality that the Celtics had at the beginning of the season where everybody took that loss to heart. And they wanted to respond and they were laying it down across the league. They were beating the crap out of everybody. And Jason Tatum, like we heard all summer long, he was so upset about the loss. And we're watching the games like he looks like a guy that's pissed off about the losses. Where is that gone? That mentality that the Celtics have, they don't have it right now. It feels like they're just lackadaisical out there. And they're just, as we mentioned, they settle for so many threes when they're not falling. But last night, to me, the biggest thing in terms of not having that FU mentality 
was the defense in the first half. And great, they picked it up in the second half, but where were you for the first half of that game? I don't understand how you come out when you're struggling offensively, your defense needs to pick you up, and you need to create energy from your defense. The Celtics didn't have that at all, and they had two days off prior to the game. They hadn't played since Sunday. The other thing I'd mention in terms of my concerns with this team is, who's going to get them out of this, right? And that brings me to Ime, because for the first time all year, I feel like not having Ime Adoka is hurting this team, okay? Because I don't feel like one of your star players, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, can be the guy that calls everybody out. It just doesn't feel like, and I know Jalen is a fiery personality on the court, but it doesn't really feel like either one of those guys is the type of guy that can be screaming at his teammates. And I'm like, you shouldn't do that if that's not your character, right? Tatum is a more laid back guy. Like he's more similar to, say, Kawhi Leonard than he is to Kevin Garnett or Kobe Bryant, right? So Marcus Smart was the guy that tried to do it last year. And remember, that backfired on Marcus Smart, even though, and we talked about this with Sean Grandy last week, he was right about what he was saying about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but they did not take it well. And Marcus Smart had to eat in the cafeteria or whatever with Jason Tatum. Remember, they made up like it was a big thing. It was not great for the team, even though Marcus Smart, what he was genuinely saying, it didn't come across right, but the point he was making was right at the time. But anyway, so here's the thing is you don't have a player that can do that. And Ime was the guy that was on Tatum, that was on Brown, that was on the entire team. And no matter what Joe Mazzulla says publicly, it's not going to be the same, right? First of all, he doesn't have that personality that Ime has. He's more similar in demeanor to Brad than he is Ime. And Joe has done some really nice things offensively. I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. He's really changed the offense until this month, of course. But there was a difference with Ime. There was a respect factor. And I'm not saying the guys don't respect Joe Mazzulla. They certainly do. But with Ime, and maybe some of this is just his stature in some ways, like his physical stature, he was intimidating. And the thing about Ime is he didn't give a shit about anybody. He would call everybody out because at that point, remember, Tatum and Brown hadn't been guys that went to the NBA finals. And I'm not saying that they don't have the correct demeanor or correct personalities. They certainly do to make a deep run into the postseason. But with Ime, it's different, right? Ime's the one that got them over the hump. Ime's the guy that turned this whole thing around from a coaching perspective. Ordinarily, we don't say that about the coach. It's usually about the players. But with Ime, he was a major factor. This team made the run that it did. We all referenced the defense, which, of course, was the ethos of Ime as a coach. But also, how many times did he call the guys out after games? How many times was Ime getting into it with players during games? It felt like, okay, maybe he's going over the top a little bit too much. But clearly last year, this group needed that. And I just don't feel like Joe Mazzulla can be that guy. So I think you do have somewhat of an issue in terms of that leader that can get everybody back on track because it's not one of your star players, right? It's not the Garnett-Kobe Bryant thing. That's not who Jason Tatum is, right? And with Missoula, he's given these guys a ton of credit. And I certainly, or I should say, Missoula's given these guys a lot of freedom. And I can understand why. They're an established team. They were the best team of the Eastern Conference last year. They made it to the finals. I totally understand that. And you don't want to just be something different than who you are as a coach. And also, you don't want to try to be Ime because that's not who you are in terms of your personality. But now, last night, this is a character loss for the Celtics. You're coming off a brutal home-and-home, or I should say two home games that you lost to the Orlando Magic, okay? And you're not ready to play? I don't understand that whatsoever. You would think, okay, it's one thing if it's a Wednesday night, you're getting ready for Christmas, and you're playing the Milwaukee Bucks on Christmas Day before that, of course, I know you have Minnesota, but you would feel like, 
The Celtics, if that was the case, they were on a winning streak. Okay, maybe this is a letdown game. But considering the way they're playing lately, I don't know how last night could possibly be a letdown game. And I'm sorry, that's on the leadership. And I get it. You start with the players, but the coach doesn't have that voice either. Do you think right now, if Ime was the coach of this team, that this shit would be going on? Like, no way. Like, that first half, that would have got cleaned up. Ime would have been all in these guys. And as I mentioned, I'm not saying that Joe Missoula is a bad coach. I'm not saying that Joe Missoula isn't the right guy for the job. But for this specific set of circumstances that is going on right now, he's not the coach that Ime is, right? And you start to think about it. Horford doesn't really have that personality, right? He can't be the guy because I don't think he can be either one of your stars, Smart, we saw what happened last year, as we alluded to. So who can really be that guy? I do feel like this is an issue, and I do wonder about this type of situation. Not that you're going to have issues in terms of your fire coming out of the gates in the playoffs, but I do wonder about this going on throughout the season, losing that leader that was Ime Adoka. He was so important to the growth of this team. He was so important to the character of this team. And it does feel like, finally, it's actually hurting this team right now. And I did want to get to some of the stuff in that game last night that was just mind-boggling to me. The Pacers offense in that first half, they had 36 points in the paint. They came into the game last night, 21st in points in the paint per game at 46.6. So last night, they were on pace for 72 in the game after the first half. And the Grizzlies lead the league at 57.9. So Indiana's not a team that gets to the basket. They're not a team that scores efficiently or much in the paint. And last night, In the first half, they were playing better than the best team in the NBA in terms of points in the paint. Then you look at the second chance points. They had 12 in the first half. They're at 13.4 per game. That's tied for 16th in the NBA. The Rockets lead the league at 17.7 second chance points per game. The Pacers in that first half were on pace for what? 24 second chance points. So this is the stuff that I don't understand how this can possibly happen. That's a lack of effort. That's a mentality issue that they had last night because in the second half, they picked it up. The Pacers just 16 points in the paint. That's on pace for 32. The Mavericks are a league worst at 41.6. Four second chance points. That's on pace for eight. The 76ers are last in the league at 9.8. So they went from the Celtics did playing like the worst team of the NBA defensively in terms of giving up points in the paint and second chance points to better than the best in the NBA at doing that. That crap can't happen. How can it take that long to flip on the switch? I get having a bad run in the game, but there's no way that it should last an entire half for the Celtics team. We know that the offense was at issue in this game as well. In the first half, they were four of 25 outside the restricted area. That's 16%. So the only scoring they were doing was at the basket and they weren't efficient there. They were just 12 of 23, 52.2%. We're talking about at the rim. They were 52.2%. They generated what? 10 corner threes in the second half compared to just two in the first half. So the threes they weren't taking or the threes they were taking weren't good. So the offense, like it's going to get better. It certainly will. But the defensive effort is what stuck out to me, despite the fact that they turned it on in the second half. Why wasn't that there in the first half? I'm not saying you have to be the best defense in the league every game, but the Celtics defense, despite them having a bad September, their defense has actually been pretty good to me last night. That's an effort thing. How can you hold a team to a 93.9 defensive rating in the second half and a 131.5 offensive rating in the first half? It just doesn't make any sense to me that this team was not ready to play. And I come back to the leadership right now with Joe Missoula for the first time all season long. I feel like there are real questions about not Missoula as a coach, but as that leader, do they have the guy? And it's not just on Missoula. Can somebody on this team step up and say, Guys, we can't be playing like this anymore. And I'm sure they're having these conversations behind closed doors, but we're not seeing the results, right? 
All right, two other concerns I have with this team right now. One of them is Malcolm Brogdon. So Malcolm Brogdon has now played three straight games where he's played north of 30 minutes. And I understand last night there was a Marcus Smart thing where Marcus Smart wasn't playing, of course, right? But four of his last five games have also been north of 30 minutes. So when playing 30 minutes the last three games, here are the numbers for Malcolm Brogdon. He's 14 of 38, which is 36.8%. He's 6 of 20 from three-point territory, which is just 30%. Okay, his previous 24 games, where he only had one game in there where he played north of 30 minutes, 50% from the field, great, right, compared to 36.8 over his last three. He shot 48.4% from three-point territory. He was actually leading the NBA prior to these last three games in terms of his three-point shooting. I go back to last season with Brogdon. Eight games where he played between 20 and 29 minutes with Indiana. 50% from the field, 42.4% from deep. When he played 30 to 39 minutes last year, he was at 44.4% from the field and 26.4% from deep. In his career, 141 games, he's played between 20 and 29 minutes, 41.5% from deep. When he plays between 30 and 39 minutes, 36.9%. So we have all the evidence in the world that Malcolm Brogdon should not be playing more than 30 minutes per night. And I understand last night was a unique situation, but this is why Brogdon was only available, or this is why Brogdon, you only had to really give up a first-round pick in Aaron Neesmith, good to see him out there last night, is that he had too many injuries throughout his career. He admitted this season that he's not a 35-minute-per-game guy. He can't play those minutes. So when he's playing those 23 to 24 minutes, like we saw for the majority of the season— he is a weapon off the bench. He is balls to the wall the entire time. Remember, his drive game has been so impactful for this team. He doesn't have to think about his endurance. He's just shot out of a cannon when he gets out there. And the thing with Brogdon is less is more with him, right? And now they're getting the Pacers version of Brogdon, right? Where there's too much on his plate. What made Brogdon enticing to the Pacers is what he did when he was playing with the Bucks when he wasn't playing those 30 minutes per game. And when you asked him to do more with Indiana, yeah, he's a good player, but he's not the team that he's not the guy that can carry your team. You can't ask him to go deep into games. It sort of reminds me of like in baseball with the Red Sox, it's like Tanner Houck, right? Yeah, one time through the lineup, he's really good. So if you look at him last year as a starter, first time through the order last season, he didn't give up an earned run. But second time through the order, he had a 771 ERA. So what does that tell you? He's a reliever. And we would find out that. Tanner Houck was actually a really good reliever for the Red Sox last year. That's what he is. He's not a starter. Tanner Houck is a reliever. Malcolm Brogdon is not a starter. He is a reserve. And that's okay. He can be, like, Tanner Houck can be a really good reliever. Malcolm Brogdon is an elite reserve. Don't ask him to be more than that, right? So you're getting diminished returns with Malcolm Brogdon because you're asking him to do something that he admitted himself he cannot do. And the other thing you have to remember with Brogdon his minutes are harder because ordinarily he's only playing with one of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. That's why it made so much sense to have him with the limited minutes because he was basically coming in there and being asked to run the entire offense. And now you're asking too much of him. And what we're seeing is those numbers I gave you are all going down across the board. So they got to get back to playing Malcolm Brogdon in that 23, 24th minute range because I get last night, Marcus Smart was not there, but the previous two games he was against the Orlando Magic. So you had just got to shave down those minutes as it pertains to Malcolm Brogdon. The one other concern is Jalen. So last four games, we've seen the sloppy turnovers again. Up to five over his five per game over his last four games. He had four last night. He had seven on Friday. And we're seeing those lazy turnovers with Jalen, those ones that just make scra you scratch your head like, what is he doing, right? He had a three-game stretch, did Jalen, 
earlier this month where he had just one turnover. Remember, it was his longest amount of minutes played without a turnover. And last night he had some bad ones and he took some bad shots late. He played really poorly in that game against Indiana. Like Tatum brought them back, had the 40 plus game. Jalen was eight of 23 from the field. And here's what concerns me. Last four games for Jalen, I mentioned the turnovers, but he's taken eight threes per game. He's 10 for his last 32 from deep. He was taken around seven a game during prior to this four game stretch and he was shooting just 33.9%. And he's just not a great three point shooter. And I look at Jalen in these four games, he's taken 6.3 above the break threes per game. And you look at Jalen the past three seasons, he's at 7.1 threes per game. He shot 39.7% two years ago. Then he was at 35.8% last year, took seven threes a game. And this season, he's taken 7.1 threes per game, and he's shooting 33.5%. So as Jalen's career has gone on over the past couple of years, he's actually become a worse three-point shooter. He's become a better shooter overall, as I've alluded to on multiple occasions, but his three-point shooting continues to fall. His career his career is 36.9. So he's never been a great three-point shooter. Now, he's unbelievable in the mid-range. We've outlined that. We talked about it last week as well. He's at 55.9%. He's legitimately one of the best mid-range shooters in the NBA. For a while, he was leading the NBA in mid-range percentage. So I'm not saying that Jalen has to go all the way to DeMar DeRozan territory, where he doesn't take threes. Like, DeMar DeRozan is taking 1.4 threes per game. But based on how efficient Jalen is in the mid-range, and based on how poor he is as a three-point shooter, is it time to maybe look at a guy like Kevin Durant? So Kevin Durant, for example, 4.6 threes per game, and he's shooting about 36%. He's shooting better than Jalen from three, but he only takes 4.6. Jalen's at 7.1, as we mentioned. I would just like Jalen to cut down on the three-point field goal attempts because he's never going to be a great three-point shooter. He has turned himself into an unbelievable shot maker. We saw what he did in the playoffs last year when he carried this team offensively. So I'm not saying he has to completely abort the three, but can you cut it down by three attempts per game? Take more in the mid-range. Like Jalen's one of the rare guys in the NBA where he's saying, you know what? Fuck the math game. I don't care about the math game. What I want to see from Jalen Brown is get downhill, get to your spots, because we know he can stop on a dime, elevate, and hit that mid-range jump shot. He's an elite two-point pull-up shooter. So get back to that. And I really do think somebody's going to have that conversation with Jalen. And I know that the Celtics are one of the most analytical teams in the NBA, but at some point, you got to realize what the player is not good at. Jalen Brown is not a good three-point shooter. I'm not saying that he can never take threes again, but he's not a good three-point shooter. Show him the mid-range numbers. Show him the pull-up numbers and say, Jalen, this is where you should be operating. Show him Durant's numbers because he'd be a much more efficient player. He's a great player, but he'd be much better if he cut down his threes. I'd like him to do it by half the attempts per game, but if he can just cut it down by two and a half, three, just go ahead and do that and you're going to be a much more efficient player. All right, man, the Celtics, they're driving me crazy right now because I felt like this is one of the teams we can bank on. You can't bank on the Red Sox. You can't bank on the Patriots. You can bank on the Bruins. They're an absolute wagon right now. We talked about them the other day, but I thought you could count on the Celtics. So go out there Friday night, take care of Minnesota, and then we can be excited about the game against Milwaukee on Christmas Day because I've been looking forward to this game for a couple of weeks now, and now I'm kind of like, I'm worried. Like, what's going to happen on national TV against the Milwaukee Bucks if they don't figure this out soon? All right, a lot more to get into. We're going to preview this. Patriots Bengals game with Dan Hoard, the play by play voice of the Cincinnati Bengals, in just a couple of seconds here. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. 
So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. It is Dan Horde. Dan, Merry Christmas, and thanks so much for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Brian, Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me on. You excited for a Christmas Eve at Foxborough? Believe it or not, yes. Partly because my in-laws live in Braintree. My wife and son are making the trip. They will attend the game. I have warned my son to wear something over his uh, Joe Mixon or Jamar Chase jersey, uh, but it'll be a nice little adventure for me and my family. Yeah, no doubt about that. It works out for you, I guess. So, Dan, before we get into this game, the Patriots and the Bengals, I wanted to get your opinion on what happened last week because our old guy, Tom Brady, four turnovers in that game. To me, at times this year, he just looks miserable. He looks frustrated. What was your impression watching Tom last week? I thought in the first half he looked like Tom Brady when he was – 25 instead of 45. He was great in the first half, and it really felt like he got embarrassed in, at home. At, at home, I mean in San Francisco the previous week when they played horribly against the 49ers. I think he had something like 100 and friends and family that he got tickets for uh, for that game against the 49ers. So we know what Brady's like when he gets embarrassed. He usually comes back strong, and in the first half he did. But the Bengals made some defensive adjustments in the second half. It's something they've done extremely well all year. And they really frustrated Brady and the Bucs and played great and gave Joe Burrow short fields time after time after time after time. And if you do that, Joe Burrow's going to beat you. And that's exactly what happened with the Bengals reeling off 34 straight points. Well, and speaking of Joe Burrow, so this Bengals team is now on six in a row. Burrow's been playing excellent. Obviously, had a great year last year. They went all the way to the Super Bowl, and he's followed it up with a really impressive performance again I know he's not really in the MVP conversation but he's played like an MVP caliber quarterback this year does it feel like this team is starting to peak at the right time again sort of like last season no question it feels very similar with this difference the offensive line is playing well so last year they were within two minutes of winning the Super Bowl with a subpar offensive line and ultimately that was their undoing against the Rams they couldn't block Aaron Donald and Von Miller but they rebuilt it Uh, Four of the five guys are new. Only the left tackle, Jonah Williams, is back. They have three free agents, including the former Patriot, Ted Karras. They've got a rookie starting at left guard. And at the beginning of the year, it was kind of shaky. Seven sacks in week one, six sacks in week two. Everybody was saying, ha, nice job of fixing the offensive line, Bengals. These guys are still lousy. But it takes time for the offensive line to gel. They didn't play in a single preseason game together. The right tackle, L. Collins, had a bad back during training camp, so he didn't really even practice until the final week. Now these guys have that chemistry that comes when you play together. They have started every game this season. I'm finding wood to knock on uh, because injuries are obviously a huge key this time of year. But now that the offensive line is playing well, you really have that feeling, here we go again. If they can stay reasonably healthy, they're going to be a tough out in the postseason. Yeah, and I remember, too, going back to that playoff run that that was the storyline, right? The offensive line and what Burrow was doing to escape it. And it feels like last year, obviously, Belichick won the executive of the year. He's going to be nowhere in that conversation this year. But it does feel like maybe Duke Tobin can get it a year late, right? Because they were criticized, I remember, for selecting Jamar Chase over Panay Sewell. And the next year, the offensive line turns into, as you're saying, it's playing really well. But it does feel like taking Chase fourth overall was clearly the right decision And it felt like, okay, I can put more resources and free agency into the line, but I'm not going to be able to find a Jamar Chase at number four again. 
Brian, I'll be honest. I was one of the idiots that say that would have that said at the time draft Panay Sewell. <laughs> and there was a real divide in Cincinnati. It was a civil war. You are either team Chase or team Sewell. Build the <laughs> line or give Joe Burrow another weapon. What I learned from that experience last year is that the value of a transcendent wide receiver is greater than the value of a great offensive lineman. And I even mean Anthony Munoz, the greatest in franchise history, the greatest player in Bengals history. But if you find a wide receiver that's as good as Jamar Chase, he can just impact the game more than any single offensive lineman. You need to make sure that your offensive lineman doesn't have anybody terrible on it. But as long as the five guys are good, above average, and play well together, you're okay. But if you give a quarterback like Joe Burrow a weapon like Jamar Chase, that takes you to a different level. So I learned a lesson from that experience, and I'm glad you mentioned Duke Tobin. I'm guessing that uh, in about 30 of the 32 NFL cities, they don't even know who the Bengals draft guru or major you know, executive is. He doesn't have the title of GM, but technically he is the Bengals GM, and he has done a phenomenal job, not only in the draft, but in free agency, let's face it, most people think the Bengals don't spend money. They've been one of the biggest spenders over the last three years in the NFL. They've built the offense through the draft and the defense through free agency, and they haven't missed. The only guy that they spent a lot of money guy, a lot of money on that washed out was cornerback Trey Waynes. Everybody else on defense that they brought in has been a home run. Yeah, it's been remarkable. And I remember he was even criticized for signing Hendrickson to that big money deal, saying like, oh, a lot of his sacks in New Orleans were cleanup sacks, but that's worked as well. So getting back to Burrow for a second, I feel like even going back to college, he had, for lack of a better term, like this healthy arrogance. What's been your favorite part besides like the winning and going to the Super Bowl? What's been your favorite part of covering Joe Burrow? The way that he has transformed the uh, team, the city the fan base, and it's not just his play, it's his confidence. It's the way he carries himself. We throw around the term, the it factor, or whatever that is. He certainly has it. Uh, Head coach Zach Taylor does not like the term swagger when it comes to Joe Burrow. (laughs) I don't care. He has it, uh, whether uh, the Bengals want us to use it or not. And it has elevated everybody. They have a confidence level now that they haven't had probably going back to Boomer Esiason. I think Boomer was the last Bengals quarterback that had that it factor. Carson Palmer was a great player, but he didn't have that. He was just do his thing, throw a beautiful ball, but you know, elevating the entire city was just not his mojo. Andy Dalton had a very good run as Cincinnati's quarterback, five straight playoff appearances, but he definitely didn't have that. Joe Burrow does. He's naturally cool. Everything that he does just makes you think this guy uh, is the guy you want leading your franchise. And, you know, he's perfect for Cincinnati. He's an Ohioan. He's kind of fits the 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 uh, just the mood of the city perfectly. Um, Patrick Mahomes is a more talented player. You could probably make the case that Justin Herbert is. There's no quarterback in the NFL. I would rather have for this franchise than Joe Burrow. Yeah, it just seems like the perfect fit. And then he gets his college teammate, as we alluded to, in Jamar Chase. And what a difference he made last year. But I almost feel like, Dan, the guy that flies under the radar with them and the guy that I'm worried about from a Patriots perspective with this Bengals offense being, what, fourth in touchdown percentage in the red zone is T. Higgins. The guy's six foot four. 
and the Patriots, I mean, we saw them last week finally take away a number one weapon in Devontae Adams. I'm not suggesting they do that to Jamar Chase, but it does feel like in terms of that secondary receiver, T. Higgins may be the best number two, or at least in the conversation of the best number two in the NFL. I think he is the best number two, and I wouldn't even call him a number two. He's 1A, as awesome as Jamar Chase is, and Chase is clearly phenomenal. T. Higgins is a monster. Uh, he is huge. He is strong. You, he doesn't have to get open to make the catch. Uh, he just manages to use his strength and his hands to rip the ball away from defenders that are all over him. And then you throw in Tyler Boyd as your third wide receiver, a guy that's had multiple 1,000 yard seasons, maybe the best slot receiver in the NFL. That's one heck of a trio. Now let's mix in Joe Mixon at running back, Samaj P. Ryan, who's been excellent at running back. I don't think Hayden Hurst will play this week at tight end. He's been out uh, with a calf injury, but he's been excellent when healthy. So start with a great quarterback and hand him probably the most skill position talent of any team in the NFL. That's a pretty good recipe for success. Yeah, and you mentioned Boyd, Dan. I'm thinking to myself, man, that guy would be the best receiver on the Patriots, and he's the third option right now right. for Joe Burrow. I mean, it's amazing what they've done there. And you mentioned the backs and P. Ryan and Mixon. I believe it's, what, 84 receptions between, or 82 receptions between the two of those guys out of the backfield this year. What makes that duo so special? Because we talk about the receivers and Joe Burrow, but what about those two guys? Well, Joe Mixon is really the guy. He missed two and a half games recently with a concussion, and that allowed Samaj Piran to get more touches, and he took advantage of it. He was great while Joe Mixon was out. Uh, so as a result, he's starting to get more time now that Joe Mixon is back, and that's a good thing this time of year with the wear and tear that uh, running backs take. I, I can't believe you know, the abuse those guys take, and they just keep coming back for more. So it's kind of nice to have two, and it's working well here because – they were in the same recruiting class at Oklahoma. They've been NFL teammates now for four years. They've got a great relationship. So when Joe Mixon comes out of the game, he's not standing on the sideline grousing. That's his buddy in there that's getting some touches. Samaje Pirine is used to kind of playing second fiddle to Joe Mixon because he did it at Oklahoma. So it's kind of a unique pairing. And uh, you mentioned the, the passes that they have uh, this season. That's been an interesting evolution because early this year, every team the Bengals played uh, was playing Tampa two or T two deep safeties. They weren't give, going to give up the deep ball to Jamar Chase and T Higgins. So Joe Burrow adjusted. If that's what the defense is going to do, they'll throw checkdowns. They'll run the ball. Uh, they've figured out which runs work best for this offensive line and these running backs. And that has been a huge key to uh, taking off after an 0-2 start. Yeah, so you mentioned that what happened at the beginning of the season, it felt like that was a trend around the NFL. We see teams doing that with Pat Mahomes and yep. the Chiefs as well. So if there is something that gives this offense trouble this year, I know they're rolling right now. They're playing at a very high level. Is there something that gives them issues? That was it, but they've gotten better. I would still say most teams try to do that because what do you want to do? Give up a 60-yard touchdown pass to Jamar Chase or at least hope that maybe the Bengals make a mistake or you get a tip ball that turns into an interception. One kind of weird thing about Joe Burrow this year is that he's had 26 tipped passes wow. at the line of scrimmage, which is far and away number one in the NFL. And I don't really think there's much of an explanation for it other than uh, the offensive line is doing a pretty good job of keeping people away from Joe. So what do you do if you can't get to him? You got to jump up and try to def deflect passes Teams have had some success and some luck at doing that, and 
that probably accounts for more than half of the interceptions he's thrown this year. All right. So you mentioned this defense and some of the halftime adjustments they've been making. Just looking through it, it's an interesting group. I mean, they don't blitz a ton, about 23rd in blitz rate. They aren't sacking the quarterback a ton, 22 sacks. I know Trey Hendrickson, as we mentioned earlier, has been really good for them, but they're second in completion percentage against, and they're sixth in pass rating against. So what makes that pass defense so effective, even though it doesn't really feel like they're sacking the quarterback very often? I think it starts with their safety. So Von Bell and Jesse Bates are an excellent duo. They've played together now for three years and they are great at communicating the kind of the trickier things that Lou Anarumo wants to do and confusing quarterbacks. Probably the best example was the AFC championship game last year against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Chiefs go up and down the field and are dominating at the first half. Didn't score uh, until the final minute of regulation uh, in the AFC championship game. And that was just a field goal. They didn't give up a touchdown in the second half. So Luana Rumo's, uh, he's kind of the mad scientist type. And it, it really begins with the things that he does in the secondary late movement, unusual coverages, changes it up from half to half, game to game, week to week, based on the quarterback and the receiving targets that he has. And it all begins with Bates and Bell communicating everything at the safety position. Yeah, and we heard Bill Belichick this week waxing poetically about the Bengals. And he said, this is the best group of weapons in the NFL, which I don't really dismiss that. I think Bill, a lot of times he'll hype up the opponent, but this team, it seems like it's actually appropriate what he's saying. But I think about the other side of things, right? Because I'm interested from the Bengals perspective, like who are they talking about that they're concerned about from the Patriots offense? Because it's been a real struggle. Is it basically Ramondre Stevenson? Is that who they're concerned about? That's certainly the guy at the top of the list. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't watched the Patriots that much over the last couple of years to know a lot about him. So I obviously have been this week and I'm like, whoa, this guy's impressive. So he is definitely number one on the scouting report. And let's face it, Mac Jones has had a rough year, but he was pretty darn good last season. And they've looked at two years of tape, not one. So they know what he's capable of. Um, you never dismiss a Bill Belichick coach team, even if the offense seems to be a mess right now. But it does begin with Stevenson as the number one weapon, no question. Yeah, Dan, and from somebody that calls games basically each and every week except for the bye week, and you look across the NFL right now, speaking of Mac, and we see Joe Burrow, who may be the best extender of plays in the NFL. Mahomes can throw from all these crazy angles. He can extend plays. We see Josh Allen when the Patriots play him. The guy runs people over. He's a freak. You mentioned Herbert earlier who has maybe the biggest arm in the entire NFL. And then you look at Mac Jones, right? He's a prototypical pocket passer. Doesn't really have that elite skill that jumps off the board at you in terms of the arm strength, the ability to extend plays. Do you think a guy like that can become, get eventually, and he's a long way away from it right now, the season he's having, but just those traits, can you get to an elite level in 2022 and beyond based on the way that the league is going? Top five elite, something like that? Probably not. Good enough to... Have a playoff run on a great team? Absolutely. It has happened plenty of times in NFL history. And yes, the game has changed. But the, the primary things a quarterback needs to do, in my opinion, understand what the defense is doing, get it to the right guy, and throw accurately. And I think Mac Jones can do those things. He's not going to extend plays. Either did Brady. <laughs> Worked out well for Tom. Uh, Tom, now, <laughs> Tom has a great arm still at 45 and I don't know that Mac will ever get to that level but it does seem like when he plays well he does have accuracy and processing ability and I still think those are the number of the top two qualities a good quarterback has to have all right Dan and before we let you go I'm interested in your take on this so 
When the Patriots announced this year that Matt Patricia was going to be the offensive play caller, everybody here was like kind of stunned. What was the reaction from you as somebody from the outside looking in? Because Belichick's got this great resume, but this one seemed like the most bizarre decision he's made since really not playing Malcolm Butler in the Super Bowl. But were you as shocked as everybody else when you found out that Matt Patricia is the play caller of the Patriots? Yeah, shocked and just kind of mystified, just wondering what would be his motivation or or why would he think that that was going to work? And it doesn't seem to have worked. I guess, you know, as an outsider, you just figure that Bill Belichick's feeling is that a great coach is a great coach, whether it's on offense, defense, or special teams, and that they are malleable. And maybe in some cases they are. That doesn't appear to be the case this year with the Patriots. I'm guessing there will be major changes on that side of the ball next year. But uh, I'm hoping it continues to look bad for at least one more week because... (laughs) Uh, the Bengals track record head to head against the Patriots during the Belichick era, like most teams has not been good. So I don't think anybody here is taking things for granted on Saturday. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I think you're safe betting against the Patriots offense this week. It's been, it's been really difficult to watch and we sound spoiled, right? Because they were a dynasty for 20 years, but it's been rough to watch. That is Dan Horde, the play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. Dan, have a great call on Saturday and enjoy Christmas Eve in New England, my friend. I will, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Dan Horde, the play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. Joe Burrow, man, that guy is absolutely incredible. I do think in some ways he does remind you of Tom Brady, just like the moxie the confidence. He does kind of have that vibe to him. All right, it's time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. So I'd like to tell you that I want to see the Patriots win this game, which I do, but I, if I'm a betting man, which I am, I have no faith in the Patriots whatsoever. So I like the Bengals to cover those three points. I don't see a way, quite frankly, the Patriots make this a game, nevertheless win the thing. So the Patriots offense, we know, is a complete train wreck, and the Bengals defense has been solid. As you heard from Dan Horde there. They're seventh in dropback success rate. They're second in completion percentage against, so the passing numbers have been good. They've been good against the rush, too. Ninth in yards per carry against, eighth in rushing yards per game against. So how are the Pats going to score? You had all these issues against the Raiders last week who came in with the worst pass defense, according to Football Outsiders metric DVOA. How are you going to do anything against this Bengals defense that has been really good? And also, another thing that Dan pointed out is they've been really good in terms of halftime adjustments defensively. The Patriots, they don't make any adjustments offensively. It's not like they get better in the second half offensively. So they're really good at making adjustments. The Patriots offense is not. It just feels like they're not going to be able to score whatsoever. And then on the other side, you mentioned they have, or we mentioned they have Chase, they have Boyd, they have T. Higgins. 
we saw the Raiders pick on Miles Bryant with Matt Collins. And now you look at these guys. Higgins is 6'4". Chase is a contested catch guy. You're going to have to double chase. And that leaves Higgins singled up. I just don't know who's matching up with that guy. And then you look at this Patriots defense, right? And they can get to the quarterback second in pressure rate at 26.8%. They're third in sacks at 48. But Burrow is one of the best guys in the entire NFL at staying alive. And as Dan mentioned, the line issues have been cleaned up there. And you look at Burrow, I almost feel like having those issues with the offensive line last season helped him to become a better extender of plays. In a weird way, it actually helped him long term. So he's been sacked 37 times, which is the sixth most in the NFL. But if you don't get there, forget about it, because Burrow has not been pressured often. Just 26.6% of his dropbacks, which is the fourth best in the NFL. And when he extends plays, it's dangerous. You look at Burrow, when he has more than two and a half seconds in the pocket, he's completing 66.5% of his passes, which is first in the NFL. He has a 108.2 passer rating when he has more than two and a half seconds, which is second. So if you don't get him on the ground, basically your defense is going to be in major trouble. And I can see a lot of that happen with this Patriots team coming up on Saturday because I don't see the Patriots being able to extend drives. I see this defense being completely fatigued. And I see the Bengals and Joe Burrow in particular lighting this defense up in the second half. Like the Patriots defense may keep him in the game for the first half. But once you get to post halftime and the offense is doing what it ordinarily does, which is absolutely nothing, that's when the Bengals offense will come alive. All right. So I did want to get to this with Mac Jones because I'm just wondering right now, where Mac was drafted 15th overall two years ago, how many teams in the NFL would give up a first-round pick for Mac Jones after the season based on the way that he's played? Because that's the value that you had for Mac. You had him as a first-round quarterback, 15th overall. You go through the list of teams in the NFL. The Bills, they certainly wouldn't. They have Josh Allen. The Dolphins certainly wouldn't. They have Tua. The Jets, I don't believe they would. Now, another unproven guy in Mac Jones, because he's had a bad season, like I understand Zach Wilson is not good, Mike White has been dealing with an injury, but if the Jets, if they decide, hey, we're moving on from Zach Wilson, you would think they were going to go after a proven commodity, right? Like an Aaron Rodgers or something along those lines, not another guy where you don't know if he's good or not. Like right now, you don't know if Mac Jones is good. The Bengals, obviously, they're not going after Mac for a first-round pick. They have Burrow. The Ravens have Lamar. That's an O. Cleveland traded for Watson. That's an O. The Steelers, that's an O. They just drafted Kenny Pickett. Same type of player, right? And he's got one more year of control under his contract. What's the point of flipping Mac Jones for Kenny Pickett? It just doesn't make any sense. The Titans, Tannehill has an 18.8 dead cap figure next year, so they're not making that deal. The Jags have Lawrence. The Texans know they're going to have the number one pick in the draft, and if they don't take a quarterback this year and they don't take Bryce Young, say, they're going to go back in and get one next year. Indy, okay, right now they're at six in the draft, so they could get a quarterback there. They could even move up if they wanted to, so I don't see Indianapolis saying, hey, Mac Jones is worth a first overall pick or worth a first round pick. Kansas City has Mahomes, so they wouldn't do it. The Chargers have Herbert, so they wouldn't do it. The Raiders, I don't like Carr. I've made that abundantly clear, but he's better than Mac. And if you're Las Vegas with Josh McDaniels, that's a veteran team, right? You're going to go after Brady or Aaron Rodgers. If you're changing your quarterback from Derek Carr, you're not going after Mac Jones, even though we know Josh likes Mac. The Broncos, they can't. The dead cap hit for Wilson is 107 mil. Philly has Hurts. Dallas, they have Dak. The Giants... Maybe Dayball would look at Mac and say he's better than Daniel Jones. I've never been a big Daniel Jones guy, but Daniel Jones is more athletic. And what we've seen from Dayball, he likes the athletic quarterbacks, right? Going back to Alabama, and then you saw what he did with Josh Allen. And now he has Daniel Jones that likes to look, likes to run, obviously. So I don't think that they would do it. Washington, maybe, right? Because 
You would expect maybe they try to go after a veteran, but if Heineke really struggles down the stretch, maybe they say, hey, maybe Max worth it because they're not going to be in that area where they could actually go after a guy in the draft. But I will say this with Washington. When you get new ownership, they may look at it and say, hey, maybe this is appealing because they have a really good defense. They have a number one receiver in Terry McLaurin. Maybe that is appealing to an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady. The Vikings, no, Cousins. So if you move on from Cousins, you're rebuilding with Mac Jones. That doesn't make sense to me. The Lions, they like Goff. Goff's played well this year. The Packers, they have Rodgers. If Rodgers moves on, you would think they would just want to bottom out, maybe see what Jordan Love is. Fields, no. Bucks, you could see it if Tom's gone, right? If they want to try to rebuild now. Carolina, no eighth overall pick. Just push it down the road if you don't take a quarterback there. Saints, they don't have a first rounder. Falcons, Arthur Smith likes to run a ton of boots, so I, I don't see Mac fitting in that offense. And I know that they drafted Desmond Ritter, not saying that he's a great player or anything along those lines, but I don't see the Falcons being interested in Mac. 40 plus, they have the seventh pick in the draft. So are you going to pass on a blue chip opportunity? The 49ers, no. They don't have a first round pick. The Seahawks, Geno's been good for them. Arizona has Murray, and the Rams don't have a first round pick. So maybe Washington, maybe Tampa. So you look, if we ask this question about, say, Joe Burrow after a year or two, 75% of the league would go after the guy, maybe more than that. Like if you don't have Mahomes or if you don't have Josh Allen or if you don't have Justin Herbert, right, based on the age, you're considering going after Joe Burrow if he's available, right? So you just look at it after, and I get it, like Tua after year two, nobody's giving up a first round pick for him. But this is sort of my point. You have a guy now in Mac Jones that is getting worse and he's really not an asset at this point. Like if you're trading Mac, what are you getting? You're not getting a first round pick. So he's worth less now than when you drafted him. Burrow, you'd give up three first rounders, right? Maybe more. And with Mac, you would really have to take a discount to get rid of Mac Jones, right? He's not a big time commodity in the NFL right now. And even like most confident offensive minds in the NFL, there's not that quality that sticks out to you with Mac and you say, hey, you know what? He's got the arm like Josh Allen. Hey, if we can just get him right, he's going to be unbelievable. Mac doesn't present that, right? So the Pats right now, they can't even make him look good because there is nothing around him and the coaching is an issue. And now, do we even know if Bill wants Mac long-term? Because on Wednesday, he was asked, hey, is Mac the start of the rest of the year? Bill said, yeah, the plan is to beat Cincinnati. So wouldn't commit to him. And this is after, remember, how he handled the Bailey Zappi situation where he wouldn't announce Mac the starter after he put him out there on Monday Night Football for three series. He pulled Mac to put in Zappi. It was a weird situation where later we'd find out Mac couldn't play the entire game. So what was the point of playing him anyway? But it took him until late that week to name Mac the starter that week. So he was showing a lack of confidence then. So right now, when you look at Mac, Bill did that to him. Bill wouldn't say this week he's the starter for the rest of the year. That's a very easy question. Yes, Mac's our starter for the rest of the year. He did this with Cam Newton when the Patriots were eliminated from the postseason. Bill was being asked, hey, is Cam going to start the rest of the games? Bill said, yes, Cam is our quarterback. He won't even do that with Mac Jones. He'd do that with Cam Newton. So right now, just Mac has zero value. And I reference this with Ted Johnson. I didn't give you the numbers, but if you look at Mac Jones's production this year and you compare it to Cam Newton, it's very similar. Really, the only statistical category Mac has an edge in is Mac said 210 passing yards per game. Cam was at 177.1. Completion percentage identical, 65.8. The yards per attempt, 6.9 for Mac. Cam was at 7.2. Passer rating, Cam has a slight edge, 82.9 compared to Mac at 82.6. Cam has him in QBR, 39.4, Max at 30.7. And you got a little bit of an edge, of course, if you're a running quarterback. 
Seven touchdowns for Mac, eight interceptions, eight touchdowns for Cam, 10 interceptions. The record, 5-6-0 for Mac, 7-8-0 for Cam Newton. So basically, the reason I outline this is you're getting basically the same production without the element of the run with Mac Jones than you got with Cam Newton when we were all over Cam Newton and saying what a horrible quarterback he was. And I'm not saying this is all Mac's fault. You look at just the success rate per down. Last year in 2021, they were at fourth on first down, eighth on second down, and fifth on third down. This year, they're at 24th on first down, 19th on second down, and 28th on third down. They were scoring on 48% of their drives last year, second in the NFL. This year, that number's all the way down to 34.2%, which is 20th. So yes, a lot of this has to do with Matt Patricia. And one of the things I would look at as it pertains to Patricia is, how many screens are you going to run? If you look at Pro Football Focus, they document all this. Mac this year, 16.3% of his dropbacks are screens. That's third of 38 qualifiers. How obvious was it when they were throwing screens against Arizona? This year, or I should say last year, that number was at 10.2%, which was 19th out of 38 qualifiers. So they have gone above and beyond to run all these screens, which I don't really understand because they haven't really been effective for Mac Jones whatsoever. So it's not just Mac, but the system is broken. So if we're talking about next year, right, because it just feels like the Patriots are stuck with Mac and Mac is stuck with the Patriots right now. As bad as that sounds and as crazy as that sounds after a good rookie season, you look at it, right? If you're Tom Brady or you're Aaron Rodgers, now Brady's a whole different conversation, but what's attractive about the Patriots to you? You have a bad offensive system here right now where Matt Patricia's calling plays, who the hell knows who's calling plays next year, and you don't have a number one target. So, like, if you are coming to the Patriots, if you're Rodgers, you almost have to bring your own guy and you're going to have to bring weapons. So if a quarterback does become available like a Rodgers, why would he even entertain coming here? So it's going to be almost impossible to upgrade over Mac Jones. Like if the Raiders or the 49ers or even the New York Jets who have the Garrett Wilsons of the world, that's a more intriguing team right now than the New England Patriots. Like you don't have a sell point. So the problem for the Patriots is right now they're on this treadmill of mediocrity where They're a good team, pretty good team, playoff fringy team, but not a great team with no real way to upgrade the quarterback position unless Mack improves. And that's a big ass. So even if you think Mack can take a leap with better coaching, do you expect Bill to get a better offensive coordinator and better weapons? Can he do both of those? Because Mack is limited as a player. He needs weapons and he needs the system. Like look at Kirk Cousins. He looks better because he has who? Justin Jefferson, arguably the best receiver in the NFL, and Kevin O'Connell, a really good play caller. Tua got McDaniel as his play caller, and he got Tyreek Hill. Hertz, of course, got Sirianni, who we'd find out is a good offensive mind, and he got A.J. Brown. The Pats, they have to get the best out of Mac when they don't have a good play caller and they don't have good weapons right now. And what tells you they're going to be able to change those things around? So I think where we're heading towards right now, and we've kind of arrived here as a bad marriage, Mac's behavior and some of the stuff that has happened to him, I'm talking about his on-the-field behavior where he's just so demonstrative. And what's happened to him with the fan base in that Bears game, it's constantly complaining about Patricia. And right now, you feel sort of low on Mac as a fan base and just as an observer. If you watch Mac play, you have to be down on him this year. And Bill doesn't really seem committed to Mac. He's out here talking about, as we mentioned the arm strength on the Hail Mary. He didn't reference arm strength, but he said, hey, it wasn't even an option to throw a Hail Mary at the end of the game. And Bill, as we know, the whole zappy thing was an issue earlier this season. So for better or worse, it feels like Mac and the Patriots are stuck together because 
there's really at this point, there's not an alternative for either party. It's not like the Patriots can upgrade the quarterback position mightily. Like if you want to go with Zappy, have fun. I mean, he played well for the Patriots. But again, I mean, it, you're not expecting to get elite quarterback play out of Bailey Zappi. And if you look at it from Mac Jones, he's not really intriguing to other teams right now. So it's not like Mac has a better option. It's not like the Patriots have a better option. And it just feels like both parties are stuck with each other right now. And it's not a great feeling as a Patriots fan. And I will say this about Mac. He's taken a lot of criticism this year, but also Matt Patricia's taken more. And Mac Jones deserves to be criticized with some of the leadership issues that he's presented and some of the demonstrative stuff that he's shown on the field. It'd be one thing if you were given the team results, he's not. So going forward, I just wish down the stretch of the season, Mac would stop doing that. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. That number is 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. We will be back with you. Remember, special show on Saturday, Christmas Eve. The Patriots and the Bengals will be back with James White after that game. So we're going to change the schedule instead of doing our normal Sunday because there's no Patriots on Sunday. They're playing on Saturday. We'll have a full pod for you off the Pike pod coming up on Saturday after the Pats and the Bengals. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.